God, we are so thankful for this morning, Lord, to be able to sit under the authority of your word and to be fed. And God, we confess our great need of you and Lord, for you to be able to do things that only you can do. Lord, this passage is difficult to receive. And so God, I pray that by your spirit that you would give us hearts that are receptive to this passage. God, I pray that you would give us eyes to see Lord, the truth that is in here. God, I pray that you would protect us from the temptation of thinking that someone else should listen to this message rather than ourselves. But Lord, help us to come hungry for what you have to say to us, we pray in Jesus' name, amen. Well, babies have the best life, don't they? When you think about it, they have very low expectations. I mean, they basically sit there and they're supposed to be cute, they're supposed to sleep, and they're supposed to eat, right? That's kind of the life of a baby. Now, they might coo and giggle and cry, you know, but they're fed food, they process that food, they dispose of that food, sometimes all at the same time, and uh, they are just adorable, whether they're six days old, six weeks, or six months old. Even toddlers are extremely cute. You know, they're kind of wobbling around in those you know, big diapers and they're exploring and interested in all kinds of, of new things that they're learning. They wear their emotions on their sleeve a lot and they're trying to uh, exert their own independence when they're in that toddler stage. We've got a toddler right now and it feels like we're negotiating with a terrorist often uh, as they make demands and you know, try to point out different things. But something that toddlers and babies do is that they, they basically live their lives at the center of the universe. And they are like unashamed about that. Like they don't care that they live that way. Like they're not trying to hide it. That's just the way that they live their lives. Now, when they're a toddler, when they're a baby, like that's fine. Like they're supposed to do that. But imagine a 12-year-old living in that state or a 30-year-old or a 60-year-old who is living like a toddler or a baby, you know, wearing a, wearing a diaper, running around as if they're the center of the universe. Like if we saw that out in public, like we would conclude like there's, there's something wrong with that individual. And in fact, there is a, a label for that that's becoming more and more popular. It's called infantilism. And it was popularized by William Windsor in the early 2000s, this 50-year-old man who decided he didn't want to grow up. Five foot 11, 180 pound man, um, received a large inheritance and kind of went a little bit um, crazy. He just wanted to wear a diaper all day, wore a pink dress and slept in kind of a crib. And he's popularized kind of this new phenomenon of baby men or infantilism. Now, if you and I saw that, like, you know, William shopping at Kroger down the street, like we would be greatly alarmed. Like we would be like perplexed, but we would also be greatly concerned, right? And as we should be, that would be a normal response upon seeing an adult acting like a baby. But one of the things that I want us to see this morning, especially in this text, is when that phenomenon of adults acting like babies becomes widespread throughout the church, widespread among Christians, and not physically, but spiritually. When we see kind of this spiritual infantilism taking place, maybe in our own lives or in the lives of those around us, it should lead us to having a great concern and to be greatly alarmed. In fact, that's exactly what was taking place at the church at Corinth here. As Paul is writing in 1 Corinthians 3, Paul is greatly concerned he is greatly alarmed at the spiritual immaturity of the Corinthians here. 
And one of the things that we're going to see in this passage is we're gonna watch Paul connect spiritual infantilism with the problem of transformation, okay? And he's gonna do this by pointing out a couple of things. Now, before we get into our passage today, we're just looking at three verses. I first want us to understand the situation going on in Corinth. We're just kind of diving into chapter three. We're missing the first two chapters for context. But at the time that Paul is writing to this church at Corinth, we need to understand that there was an interesting combination uh, that was taking place among the people at this church. That on one hand, the people at Corinth were incredibly gifted spiritually. They were doing ministry. And yet on the other hand, the combination that they had was that they were also living in sin. They had behavior issues and immaturity issues related to their spiritual development. So some of those uh, sinful issues that were going on in the church were divisions and quarreling. They were suing each other. There was a misappropriation of, of the spirit and misuse of the spiritual gifts. There was sexual immorality. There was a misunderstanding of the Lord's Supper and, and other issues going on within the church that revealed their spiritual immaturity. And yet the astonishing reality about the people at Corinth here is that they thought they were wise. They thought that they were spiritually mature. They thought that they were spiritual people. That's why it took Paul basically the first two chapters to kind of explain the gaps in their spirituality. And so the situation going on here in Corinth is really the exact situation that you and I experience on a daily basis. Now here you have a group of people who are gifted spiritually, who have a lot of theology because Paul spent two years with them and yet they have some sinful behavior issues. See, there was a gap, a spiritual gap problem at the church of Corinth, something that we talked about last week. And it's the same issue that you and I struggle with today. Last week, we looked at this gap, this distance between our confessional faith, what we say we believe up here in our minds, and then how we actually live out our beliefs in our functional faith. Tends to be a distance there. And Paul is writing to the Corinthians to not only identify those spiritual gaps in this church, but he's also trying to help them understand the problem of their transformation. And so these couple of verses, they're difficult to, to stomach, and yet they're really helpful as we learn about what it means to be transformed by the gospel of Jesus Christ. Paul's gonna do two things in these three verses that, uh, that we're gonna see. He's gonna point out two causes of stunted transformation, two uh, problems with transformation that are very, very practical uh, for us today. So here's uh, cause number one or problem number one is that transformation is stunted by stalled development, by stalled development. Look with me at verse one, as Paul begins to expose the spiritual gap in the Corinthians, he says, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people. Now, let me just pause there for a moment. Let me point out a couple of things about this verse that's helpful. Number one, notice that he calls them brothers here. This is a, a Pauline way of calling them Christians, that they were converted, that they had the spirit of God within them. And yet he also says that he could not address them as spiritual people. They were unspiritual. They were living by the flesh, as Paul says at the end of verse one. They were infants, but they were also infants in Christ. Okay, it's an interesting category. He's talking about their undeveloped spirituality. Now, it's also important to know what Paul has been doing these first two chapters of Corinthians. 
In the first two chapters of Corinthians, Paul has been painting a picture of Christianity that is oversimplified. He's been trying to put every single person in one of two categories, that either you are the natural person in chapter one, verse 18, where you do not have the spirit of God, you are not converted and that you are immature spiritually, or you're in the second camp in chapter two, verse six, where you are the spiritual person. You are mature, you are converted, you're living by the spirit of Christ. Now, the problem with Paul's oversimplification is that it passes over people who fit in neither camp, okay? He's, he's too black and white in these first two chapters. And so what Paul does in chapter three, verse one, is he introduces a third category. He brings in some gray into the categorization of all people and says there's a third category. And that third category is someone who is a Christian, but is not necessarily living by the spirit, but is living by the flesh. Okay, you probably have heard the term carnal Christian. That's where it comes from in this passage. And so Paul introduces this third category and it's really helpful. It's helpful for a couple of reasons. Number one, it, it helps guard a kind of person from despair. And also it helps guard another kind of person from presumption. Okay, this text is helpful because I think it brings hope to the Christian who's struggling and also it provides warning for the casual drifter. Okay, in other words, what Paul is trying to say in these couple of verses is he's saying, look, I know that you're a Christian, Corinthians. I know that you have the spirit of Christ in you. So just because you see gaps in your spirituality, that doesn't automatically disqualify you from being a believer. And yet at the same time, use those spiritual gaps, gaps as motivation for becoming more mature in Christ. Close those gaps. And so this helpful category is something that he introduces in chapter three, verse one. Now notice uh, verse two here. He says, now I fed you with milk, not solid food, for you were not ready for it. Okay, so Paul says, hey, when I first came to you, introduced you to Christ and tried to mature you in the faith, I fed you with spiritual milk. And that was appropriate. You were a new believer. You were a baby, an infant in Christ. But then he says, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. Paul says, when you were a baby in Christ, that was fine to be fed spiritual milk, but now you're still not ready for it. You've been a believer for several years and you still cannot handle solid food. And that is a problem. Paul is highlighting their stunted spiritual development. And I think he's writing this in a way uh, in order to cause self-examination, right? When you read this passage and, and remember when Paul wrote this letter, it was to be read to the congregation in Corinth as all of his letters were. So imagine being at Corinth in that congregation. You get a letter from, you know, the father of, your, uh, of the faith, you know, like, oh, I can't wait, you know, for what he's going to say. And he basically calls you a spiritual infant in Christ, right? Just punches you in the gut. But he's writing this in a way to kind of force ourselves to ask the question, is this me? Like, is he describing how I live out my Christian faith. Am I a spiritual infant? Am I kind of spiritually walking around in a diaper, living my life as if I'm the center of the universe? Look, that's a really good question to ask. I think that's the question that the Corinthians asked. Let me take it a step further and ask the question, well, how would you know? Okay, how would you know 
that you're living in a spiritual infantilism condition? Well, Paul, I think, also answers that question by providing two characteristics of someone who's living as a spiritual infant. Let me give you both of them here. Number one is you know that you're living as a spiritual infant if you're living by the flesh and not by the spirit. It's exactly what Paul says, the second half of verse one. He says, but I brothers could not address you as spiritual people, but as people of the flesh. Now, Paul has written extensively on the difference between living by the flesh and living by the spirit. But I think none is more helpful than Galatians chapter five, verses 15 through 26. He says this, he says, but I say, walk by the spirit and you will not gratify the desires of the flesh. For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. But if you are led by the spirit, you are not under the law. Now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. But the fruit of the Spirit is love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things, there is no law. Now, I encourage you maybe sometime today or later throughout this week, maybe to do a helpful exercise by taking this passage, and you'll notice there are two different lists, right? There's a list of what the flesh produces, verses 19 through 21, and then there's a list of things that the Spirit of God produces, which is the fruit of the Spirit. And I just encourage you just to take some time and just to do some self-examination of your own life and answer the question, which list best characterizes my life? And when you look at your own life, what are some of the themes that come out when you think about your behavior, when you think about your thought life, when you think about your motives? And maybe you start to ask questions, do I see jealousy in my heart? Do I see sexual immorality? Do I see impurity and on and on? Do I see love? Do I see peace? Do I see patience? Just go down the characteristics of both and answer the question, man, am I living by the spirit or am I living more like the flesh? Maybe take that exercise a step further. Maybe ask your spouse, ask somebody that knows you, ask somebody in your small group, somebody that watches your life to be able to objectively answer that question. Are you living by the flesh or are you living by the spirit? Now this gets back to kind of what we talked about last week when we talked about how your life is like a cup and whatever you've been consuming in your heart and in your mind, when you get bumped throughout the day, that's what will spill out, right? Well, if you've been consuming the flesh and the desires of the flesh, and you're saying yes to the invitations of sin, and you're not curbing your temptations, you will produce verses 19 through 21 in your life. And verses 19 through 21 basically is it's just living by impulse. It's, it's living by what you feel. And doesn't that describe spiritual infants or, or physical infants? Does it describe babies and toddlers? Like they do like whatever they want to do. Like for them, feelings are real and they're authoritative. 
Like they're not living by logic. They're not living by spiritual truth. They're not listening to, to mom and dad. And they follow whatever impulses that they have. Well, we apply that to the spiritual realm and that characterizes a person who is living by this flesh and who has a stalled spiritual development. And so that's the first thing that kind of Paul points out here. It's living by the flesh. Secondly, another characteristic that I think is helpful in knowing if you're a spiritual infant is if you suffer from malnutrition. If you suffer from malnutrition, if you have a challenge with spiritual consumption, Verse two, that's exactly what Paul is talking about here. He talks about how I fed you with milk, not solid food for you were not ready for it. And even now you are not ready. I think that when you think about spiritual malnutrition, there are three concerns that come to my mind. Number one is the concern that you're not consuming spiritual truth at all, right? You're not spending time in the word. You're not hearing the word. You're not talking about the word. All right, that's concern number one. Concern number two is that you have a spiritual digestive issue, that you might be hearing the word, reading the word, but it just stays up here as head knowledge and it's not funneling down into your heart and you're not living it out in your life. You're not digesting it into your soul. And then the third concern, and this is really what Paul gets at here, is the quality of spiritual food, that you're only consuming the spiritual milk, and you're not moving on to more of the meaty doctrines of the faith or the meaty parts of scripture. In fact, the spiritual milk that Paul is talking about here is truth that is uniquely designed to get a proud sinner onto the path of humility and hope. And what Paul is talking about here, when he's talking about spiritual milk, He's essentially talking about the word of the cross, something he's talked about in the first two chapters, or the gospel. That the gospel message has the unique ability to get into the hard and narrow spiritual esophagus of self-reliance and pride to bring about hope and humility without choking a person to death, if you follow the imagery there. That the gospel is the spiritual milk that contains the right nutrients to be able to kill pride, to be able to remove self-sufficiency, to be able to remove self-reliance. Because if you think about the gospel for a moment, just think about the message of the gospel. The message of the gospel is that you cannot save yourself. You cannot rely on yourself for salvation. You cannot trust in your own goodness and your own good works or your own church attendance. In order to be saved, you have to trust fully and completely upon someone beyond yourself who is, Jesus, who is Jesus Christ. You have to trust in all that he's accomplished for you on the cross. And look, when you, when you tell that to somebody who's prideful and self-sufficient and self-reliant like we all are, that's almost impossible to stomach. And so the, the spiritual person though who hears about the gospel, hears about the spiritual milk and consumes it allows their pride to be removed and they consume more and more and more of it. And as a result, they grow. But the person that he's talking about here is a person who is so prideful, like their, their spiritual throat is so swollen with pride and self-sufficiency that they gag upon the spiritual milk. That they choke upon it because they're unable to actually consume it because of the things going on in their life. Look, this is the situation going on at Corinth. 
This is the problem of their transformation, that they're in this dangerous place of suffering from malnutrition. I love how the author of Hebrews, he explains spiritual malnutrition in a different way, kind of puts more color to it. He explains it this way. About this, we have much to say, and it is hard to explain since you have become dull of hearing. For though by this time you ought to be teachers, you need someone to teach you again the basic principles of the oracles of God. You need milk, not solid food. For everyone who lives on milk is unskilled in the word of righteousness since he is a child. But solid food is for the mature, for those who have their powers of discernment trained by constant practice to distinguish good from evil. Now you listen to that passage, again, another convicting and hard passage of scripture, but you almost have to take a step back and look at that passage and answer the question, does that describe my life? If you notice some of the descriptors there of someone who only can consume spiritual milk, they're dull in hearing, they can only handle the basic principles of the word, they're unskilled in the word of righteousness, they do not have discernment in distinguishing good from evil. Look, does that describe you this morning? Look, the challenge of Hebrews chapter five there and the the challenge of our passage today is basically, what do you do with the word of God? That's basically what what these passages are bringing to the surface. The whole being dull in hearing is being unable to hear the word of God and to receive it and to consume it into your soul so you actually live it out. And so the question I have for you today is, are you dull in hearing the word of God? Like when you read this, is it, are you bored of it? Do you you enjoy the word of God or is it a a lack of priority in your life? You have a failure to see the need for getting in the word of God and consuming it in your life? Or or maybe maybe you are in the word of God, but you're just in the shallow end. You avoid the the deep end of scripture and the depths of who God is and and the vastness of God's character. You look at the meaty doctrines and theologies and you you say to yourself, ah, that's not for me. I'm not a theologian. Like, just give me the cliff notes. Give me the the practical how-to steps and I'll be on my way. Or maybe you are in in the deep end of of scripture. Maybe you are consuming the the meaty theology that brings conviction and encouragement, but you have a digestive issue, just consuming facts and head knowledge. And so your head goes like this and yet your heart is small and you're not living it out in your life. Like if any of those describe you this morning, that might lead you to conclude that you have a spiritual malnutrition issue going on in your soul and it needs to be addressed in order for you to participate in the transformation that God has for your life. I read this week about an undersea diver who dives for exotic fish for aquariums. And I learned that he talked about how the most popular aquarium fish is actually the shark. And he explained that when he catches a small shark and confines it, it will actually stay the size proportionate to the size of that aquarium. That he's got adult size sharks that are about six inches because of the size of the aquarium. And he said, yeah, when you let the shark go free into the vastness of the ocean, they're gonna stretch their fins and they're gonna grow and eventually become the average length of eight feet. And I heard about that, read about that, and I thought, 
man, how true is that principle spiritually for us as believers, right? Like I, unfortunately, I know a lot of six inch length Christians in my life. I know a lot of Christians who just wanna stay on the shallow end, just in the puddles of God and his word and who do not want to grow into the ocean of God, the vastness of God, the wonder of God. Because in order to go to the deep end, what that requires is the unhurried, lingering time in God's word where you can adequately consume it and apply it into your life. I know too many Christians who say, yeah, that hour on Sunday mornings, that's enough for me. I feel fed for the week. I know a lot of Christians who do the two minute drill each day. They spend two minutes in God's word and they're off and they're on their way. I know a lot of Christians who believe one verse a day keeps the devil away. And yet that's not enough. That's not going to lead you towards spiritual maturity to where you can consume the solid food and the meat of God's word and the character of God in your life. And so as a result, if you stay on the shallow end and you're not consuming it, you're not applying it, you're going to have a stunted spiritual development. That's what Paul is talking about here. Well, that's the first cause. I know that was heavy. That's the first cause of stunted transformation. It's gonna get a little bit deeper here. And number two here is another cause is self-obsession. You can put selfishness, you can put self-love. But what Paul says in verse two is he says, and even now you are not ready for you are still of the flesh. Now, why can Paul say that there? He can say that because of the very next phrase. He says, for while there is jealousy and strife among you, are you not of the flesh? So Paul here points out jealousy and strife as things that are revealing the fact that they are not growing spiritually. These are activities of the flesh and not of the spirit. But notice that he points out behavior that are motivated by selfish gain and by a sinful obsession with advancing one's self. That's exactly why you have jealousy and strife because of this self-obsession, this love of self and the desire to advance one's self. In fact, one commentary said this about the Greek word for jealousy. It said, this word jealousy means the kind of zeal that does not try to help others, but to harm them with the predominant concern being for personal advancement. Okay, so when you see that word jealousy, think selfish concern for personal advancement. Okay, this selfishness, this self-love, this self-focus, this is exactly what Paul has been describing as the spiritual infant. Look, as cute and as adorable as babies and toddlers are, maybe the best description of them is, is that they're selfish, right? They, they only think about what's best for me. You know, feed me, pay attention to me, play with me, Right? Everything revolves around them. And again, that's okay for toddlers and for infants, but when you start acting like that as an adult and spiritually acting like an infant, that's where the problem of transformation comes to the surface. So the root issue here is this self-focus, this self-obsession, self-love, and it was stunting the transformation of the Corinthians. The opposite of dying to self. Paul elsewhere talks about this, the danger of self-love in uh, 2 Timothy chapter 3, verse 1. In that passage, he warns that in the last days, it will become difficult to stay faithful to the Lord 
And the reason for that is because of what he lists following that. He lists a bunch of, of sinful things. Do you wanna know what number one on that list is? Being a lover of self. He begins this enormous list of sin of why it's difficult to be faithful to the end, almost to teach us that the root issue of nearly every sin is this self-love, this self-obsession and self-focus. Look at last week, you know, we talked about this spiritual gap that happens sometimes in our life, that distance. And we looked at how a way to bridge the gap is by renewing the mind with the truth of Scripture. Well, if that's the bridge, then this selfishness, this self-obsession is what destroys the bridges in our life. It's what kind of creates that distance between what we claim to believe and how we actually live it out. And when you read 1 Corinthians, when you read this whole letter, you can see evidence of the sin of being a lover of self all throughout this letter. It is the driving force behind their quarreling and divisions in chapters three and four. It's what led to suing one another in chapter six. It's what led to their sexual morality in chapters five and seven. It's what led to the struggles in marriage in chapter eight. It's what led to idolatry in chapter 10. It's what led to the misuse of the Lord's Supper and spiritual gifts in chapters 11 and 12. It is the root issue behind all of these symptoms that Paul later addresses in his, issue, in, in his letter. Now, here's something that is so helpful that Paul does here in our passage. It's so practical for us this morning is as Paul begins this letter, doesn't even get to chapter three barely, and he immediately addresses the root issue of the sins that were going on in this church and doesn't immediately address the symptoms. And that is paramount. That is so important when you talk about transformation because you will never experience lasting transformation in your life if all you do is address the symptoms in your sin and not the root issue. There's all kinds of reasons why we don't experience lasting change all kinds of reasons why we experience the spiritual gaps and we can't close them indefinitely. All kinds of reasons like, number one, we don't take sin seriously enough, right? We explain it away, we blame shift, we minimize it, we hide it. Reason number two is we take shortcuts in our transformation. We don't buy into the truth about the long obedience in the same direction. But reason number three, and I think this is the most dangerous, is that sometimes we don't address the root issue like what Paul is doing here. And the reason why we don't address the root issue is either we don't know how or because it's extremely challenging. Addressing the root issue is a long process of uprooting the sin that lives deep within your heart and replacing it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And that is difficult, right? It's so much easier to remove the symptoms in our life you know, to kind of move this out of our lives. But the danger of that is the root issue will then just produce another symptom. It'll produce it maybe in a different category of sin. That's how sneaky sin is at times. And when you get caught in that cycle, the problem of transformation, if you will, it's so easy to then become frustrated, to lose hope, to think, why am I not changing? I'm putting forth so much effort. I'm trying to grow. I'm trying to become more and more godly and I'm removing these things from my life and more things just keep popping up or the same symptom keeps popping up. And sometimes we can funnel that frustration towards God himself and we think, God, help me out here. 
Like I'm putting forth all of this effort. I'm trying to change, I'm trying to grow. Why can't you help me remove this within my own life? And that point of frustration in your own transformation, in your own sanctification, becomes a pivotal moment in how you view God. Okay, let me unpack that with a, a quote I read by um, Lydia Brownback. I've been reading her book on Flora. She says this about this frustration within transformation. She, is, she says, all the frustration that is experienced by those who searched for a changed life and victory over sin is based on a wrong diagnosis of the human condition. That we erroneously believe that God is in the repair business that he compassionately repairs human lives like a friendly father fixing his children's broken toys. We make up a list of our specific problems and go about seeking the Lord for specific solutions, but nothing ever gets checked off the list and it seemingly never ends. Look, that frustration there in our transformation is because we're not digging deep enough with the Lord. Like we bring this list before the Lord, these symptoms, and we say, God, fix these things. God, remove these things from our lives. And we don't always see change going on in our transformation. And God's responding back to us, you need to dig deeper. You need to get to the root issue and expose that and replace it with the gospel. And again, it, it reveals how we view God. Sometimes we do re, we view God as a divine repairman. We think God's just existing to fix our lives, to remove things, when in reality, God is a divine demolition. Like he wants to obliterate all of the sin that's in our lives, including the root issues that sometimes we love, right? That's why we sin. We receive pleasure from it. We enjoy it. And so sometimes it's hard to exactly uproot those root issues because of our relationship with it. So as a result, we don't experience the lasting change that God has for us. I mean, imagine the Corinthians here. Again, they're, they're receiving this letter from Father in their faith. What if they responded to this passage and to this letter this way? What if they said, all right, guys, let's, let's start to remove the sin that's in our lives. Let's remove the quarreling, remove suing each other. Let's stop that. Let's stop the sexual morality. Let's use the spiritual gifts well. Right? What if they just start to address the symptoms of their lives? If they did that, then that root issue of this self-obsession is going to produce different symptoms within this church and with the lives of the believers. And they're gonna find themselves in that cycle and in that rhythm. And that is how some of us live out the Christian life. Let me give you an example of what I, what I mean. Hopefully this is helpful. Theoretically, let's just say that you struggle with the root issue of greed, okay? Struggle with the root issue of greed. And let's say there are different symptoms that you see in your life. Let's say that you are way over in over your head with credit card debt. Let's say you're not giving uh, generously. Let's say your motivation for working hard at work is so that you can earn more money. Let's say that you uh, get angry with your boss every time you don't get that raise and get that promotion. Right, you're seeing some of these symptoms in your life. And let's say you wanna grow. Let's say you wanna change. You wanna be transformed to the likeness of Christ, but you only address these symptoms. You think, all right, I'm gonna remove the credit card uh, debt. So I'm gonna, you know, I guess, live out principles that help manage my debt better. Okay, I think that's the right thing to do. I'll do that. Or I need to give more because that's what good Christians do. 
or I need to, you know, work hard maybe for different reasons. I need to work hard for myself and my own satisfaction, right? Start to address those symptoms. Well, without addressing the root issue of greed, greed is just going to create different symptoms in your life and sometimes in a different arena and category of sin. Sometimes that greed will start to show itself in the area of sexual immorality. And so without addressing the root issue, you're going to fall into the cycle and into the rhythm of never really growing spiritually. And that's where some of us live out our transformation. And that is the problem of transformation that we face. This is what's happening in the church of Corinth. And this is exactly what we have to be on guard with as we want to grow, as we want to look more and more like Jesus. We have to do the hard work, the self-examination of identifying those root issues in our lives uprooting it and replacing it with the gospel of Jesus Christ. And we'll talk about more of what that looks like next week. But from this, let me just conclude a couple of things that we learn about the Corinthians. That gifting does not equate maturity. Doesn't matter how gifted you are spiritually, it does not automatically make you a mature Christian. Time does not equate maturity. Doesn't matter how long you've been a Christian, that doesn't automatically make you mature. Facts or knowledge doesn't automatically equate maturity. It doesn't matter how much you know, but you wanna be a doer of the word and not just a hearer. But spiritual transformation is about your spiritual digestion of the word of God, walking by the spirit, not walking by the flesh and addressing those root issues that hide away in your heart with the power of the gospel. We'll talk more about what that looks like next week practically. Before we close this morning, we don't have a, a last song. I just wanna create some space and time to just stop and reflect upon this passage and maybe some things that the Lord has been revealing to you during our time. And I just want to challenge you before we leave this morning for you to do some self-examination of your own spiritual developments. I want you to just stop and, and think about your own growth and to ask yourself the question, is my spiritual transformation stalled right now? Have I spiritually plateaued? And if the answer to that question is yes, I want you to do two things before we close and maybe do this throughout the week. I want you to do number one, I want you to analyze your spiritual consumption. I want you to think through about your relationship with the word of God, not just if you're in the word, but what are you doing with the word of God after you read it? Are you digesting it into your soul, causing it to inflame your desires for Jesus that then leads for you to, to actually live it out practically? Or do you just read it and just move on with your day? So analyze your spiritual consumption. And then number two, to identify root issues of sin that's in your hearts. Not just the symptoms, but the root causes that are hiding away. And you know, a really helpful exercise in doing this is having a piece of paper and just drawing a circle and then having these lines come out of that circle and whatever those lines are, just write down symptoms in your life. And inside that circle, try to identify what the root issue that's producing all of those symptoms in your life as you use biblical categories for identifying sin that's going on in your life. And then just take that exercise and show it to a spouse, show it to somebody in your small group and say, hey, do you think this is accurate? Do you see this in my life? Are there other symptoms that I'm missing? 
Do you agree that this is the root issue that might be producing this? Because look, you know, the process of transformation, this is a group project. Like you can't do this on your own. We all have blind spots. You need other people speaking in to the process of you looking more and more like Jesus. Let's close together in prayer. God, we thank you for today and for the passage that we've studied. God, thank you that we can balance what we learned today with what we learned last week that transformation is your idea, God, that you have a vested interest in our own transformation, that you've given us everything we need for life and godliness. God, we thank you that you also provide the good works in advance for us to walk in them and to do. God, we thank you that you've given us the Holy Spirit to live inside of us, not just to comfort us, but to empower us to live out the truth of Scripture. So God, I pray that you would renew our commitment to, the, to being conformed to the likeness of Christ. God, I pray that you would remind us that this is a battle, that there is a war going on for our souls and for our transformation, or that nothing is neutral. So God, give us that sense of urgency as we leave today. Help us to enjoy Jesus on this journey of transformation and not just to rely on our own strength. God, we wanna be a church that is not only saved by the blood of Jesus, but also looks more and more like Jesus so that we can be a light in the darkness around us. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.